0: Welcome to the Restoring the Sacred Circle podcast. In this episode, we welcome Bridget Williams of Rapid City. Bridget has been working with Native children, utilizing equine therapy to help improve the mental health and well-being of our Native children. If you would like more information regarding problematic sexual behavior of youth in Indian communities, please log on to our website, ncsby.org and download your free copy of the toolkit.
1: and position and title and either your community um, that you live in or where you're from.
2: Okay, my name is uh, Bridget Williams and I am owner and operator of Red Horse Healing. We do equine assisted psychotherapy, um, Works specifically with trauma and youth with problematic sexual behaviors. And I live in the Rapid City area And the communities that I serve are in the Rapid City area, um, Rosebud, Pine Ridge, Cheyenne River, and now virtually as far as Sisseton, Wahpeton.
1: In your own words, can you describe what problematic sexual behavior is?
2: Problematic sexual behavior is um, an inappropriate coping um, behavior that I see individuals develop in a response oftentimes to trauma. Um, Whether it's domestic violence, um, bullying, um, the loss of someone, exposure to drug and alcohol in the home. It's just a a way that individuals have learned to cope Um, and I've seen an increase with the um, electronics and the inability for whatever reason of adults or caregivers in their lives able to monitor that And, um, you know, I'm seeing younger kids and I believe it's the exposure to electronics at such an early age and yeah, just develop inappropriate coping mechanisms to the trauma or traumas that they've been exposed to in their life.
1: Okay. Um, What are some terms that are used to describe PSB in your work or maybe that you've heard
2: I'll start first with the more inappropriate and, you know, it's when um, dealing with youth with problematic sexual behaviors when they're referred to as the perpetrator and that word perpetrator um, I, I think is somewhat offensive and not really descriptive of um, the youth. Uh, lots of shame and guilt-based um discussion around the child or youth and the family or caregivers um yeah that they i think there's always the assumption when a child acts out sexually that um they've been perpetrated on and um and if you have a child who has been perpetrated on their caregivers and families. Well, actually both on both sides have a lot of their own sexual abuse history. Um, So it brings up some of the negative or their unresolved um, issues from their own, from abuse that they suffered. Um, Trying to change kind of how we talk about youth with, excuse me, problematic sexual behaviors is just talking about um, those that, you know, that it's in youth that broke the rules. um, And yeah, just kind of using a more gentle wording, a more descriptive of of the child. So they're not seen as the monster that um, they're sometimes made out to be.
1: Can you think back to a time when you encountered a PSB case and kind of walk us through where you were at and maybe what happened? Um are you
2: talking about when one was referred to me? Um okay. And are we looking more for youth that are for because i deal with a majority of native population are you looking for more native um or more of youth that are on the reservation
1: um it can be either either one
2: okay um i think one that was it was when i was being trained and it was a a female and uh Her dad brought her in and she was 10 and her parents had divorced when she was about 18 months old and she had been referred by the Child Advocacy Center. And she had, what had brought her attention, brought her to the Child Advocacy Center is there were um, videos of her and another young girl um, undressing and interacting sexually with each other, they had um, been asked on a chat uh, to to do that. And um, once I started, you know, doing the assessment and the interview, I found out that she had been watching pornography in um, one form or another on her iPad since she was approximately four. And so for me, that was, alarming and um, just on so many levels, um, how we as a society now hand devices to very young children and because of their age and perhaps gender, assume that they aren't going to go to those dark places on the web, but it was just a pop-up that um, had happened when she was watching. YouTube and um, yeah, it just um, hit that pleasure center of her brain and over the six years developed into, um, yeah, daily pornography and uh, engaging in sexual activities with individuals online. Yeah, the access to internet the age and and she remembered you know being about four when it happened the first time it happened and you know it was um her parents had separated and her mom had uh moved in with somebody else and was pregnant and had another child um yeah and something so innocent could turn into that and It was a really good family to work with. They came together and um, did a lot of work together and changed their thoughts and behaviors. And and she ended up, um, you know, that I know of, she's functioning very well now as a a young teen.
1: And that's um, kind of a segue into the next question about prevention. How do we keep our kids safe with all of the technology out there?
2: There's, I think it's just the conversations, the early, you know, we we don't have the opportunity to teach kids the sexual behavior rules, unfortunately, most times until um, there's a reason that they come in contact with us. So I think prevention, part of it would be Um, finding a way for us as a society to shift, to talk about these rules more. Um, In Rosebud, the sexual behavior rules are now um, a part of the Early Head Start program. Um, The Head Start, it is not as strong in the schools, but kids are taught right away that this is a rule just like you have to stand in line in school, um, it's just made one of the rules that they learn very early and I think that as prevention is one of the biggest, being able to have those conversations, helping parents become more comfortable with having the conversations um, about the rules and Having parents, we can have the parental blocks and all of those in place. We can check the battery usage and see what, you know, what sites they're on or what apps, Um, but it's more sitting with them, seeing what they're on, just kind of with all other therapies, just talking to our kids, spending time with our kids, knowing what they're doing, giving them information. Knowledge is power, so. In doing it at an early enough age that they don't have to end up at the CAC Center or juvenile justice, um, that they have the rules and the information before they break them. Because we weren't clear due to our own issues around sexuality, we were uncomfortable with it. And I think in native communities, especially finding a way to integrate that information in a good way, when we're teaching about male and female roles. So teaching it in a in a good way, incorporating culture.
1: We want the toolkit to be used in tribal communities really throughout the nation and Alaska. So how might tribal communities use the toolkit? Well, I think that the integration of
2: the culture is in giving those tools to be able to adapt and change it to each specific community you work within is extremely powerful because even within some of the community or the reservations here in South Dakota, depending on which community within the reservation, which family, many traditions or cultural experiences can be different so that ability to adapt to the community. Because there are so many variables, whether you're using a male, female dialect in language, um, whether um, I'm in P-Dog, which is on the rosebud, and I'm going to a, a certain medicine man who Um, only male, female in nepes or sweat lodges. Um, And the teaching of why he does it that way is extremely helpful versus going to Spring Creek on the Rosebud and having a medicine man or someone who runs the lodge, allow both genders to go in. Yeah, I think the toolkit would be helpful with that.
1: Okay, that, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then what advice do you have for other people working in the field? You know, I think um, the only way
2: that we're going to have an impact is the earlier intervention. Most it is uh, finding a way to walk through your own trauma or experiences in, in regards to any sexual abuse. Because if you haven't walked down some of that, you're not going to be able to think clearly and help guide both the youth and the family that you're working with. I think the other is in whatever community that you are working, you don't have to know all the cultural components. It's really important who you know that can help connect the relatives or clients that you're working with to their culture and um, find the answers and to all these questions. You know, um, traditionally traditionally, in Lakota, you know, um, for females and males as they were growing up did not play together and um, didn't interact very much you know, maybe through some of the social gatherings when, you know, there was storytelling or that kind of thing, but they generally didn't play together. When Albert Whitehat would talk about that, he would say that it wasn't a discipline or it was males had a role to learn about and fulfill and females had a role to learn about and fulfill in order for the community and the TYA and the TOSPA to work as a community, it appears as though once some of that changed um, as colonialism happened, more of the behaviors that we see now came into being, um, that many of those lines were crossed that were traditionally in place for many reasons. Wasn't that there was never things like this didn't happen, but it was a rarity rather than what it is today on the reservations. It, the self-care, taking care of yourself so that you can pace yourself because especially, not especially, but in um, reservation areas and urban as well, we, you know, you have transportation issues, getting um, clients to be able to make it to, to the services. Um, you have the drug and alcohol, Um, addictions of others in the family. You have to be very creative in order to be able to lift families up and help get them here. Um, And that takes a lot of energy. So the self-care, the creativity of of how you make it work, the consistency, um, being your word, Um, showing up and having the plan of care in mind, but also the awareness that you have to meet that family where they're at. And sometimes it's not where you had planned on them being. And that when I when I was trained both in the group and in the family model, I kinda had this ideal that it would be, you know, this many weeks or this many months. And um, you know, it would kind of be like just checking it off and getting it done and um that's not how it is in communities where there there isn't transportation where there is um, extreme poverty and drug and alcohol use in order to even for many people cope so it it takes on a whole different meaning and trying to find that support system that is both within um, the family and the community yeah having building those relationships in the school, DSS, the courts, um, as well as in the families.
0: I'd like to thank you for being part of our podcast. If you would like more information or know of anybody that would like information, please check out our website at ncsby.org and download your free copy of the toolkit. This podcast project is supported by grant number 2019 mcfxk 22 awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Office of Justice Programs, U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice.